This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comet. Please consider subscribing if you haven't already. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is still very much in the headlines front page news, but now the general consensus is tragically that this probably won't be wrapping up anytime soon, and it may not wrap up exactly how anyone wants it to. But how does this end? Or perhaps we should be asking, does it even fully end? A lot of experts have told us that the invasion of Ukraine was really just the next step following Vladimir Putin's previous incursions into Crimea and other regions. So what's the next phase after this one? What is the goal here? Our guest today knows all the details of what's happening on the ground, but he's also been focused on the big picture of what's playing out in Eastern Europe and Russia. Oh, and he's also made Vladimir Putin's bad guys list. Marcus Kolga, an expert in Eastern European affairs and a fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute, joins us now. Great to have you on, Marcus. Thank you so much for having me on, Anthony. All right, let's get to this uh, this personal angle here for you. Vladimir mm. Putin's sanctions blacklist. A list has come out. 313 Canadians. Vladimir Putin does not like those 313 Canadians. Most of them are government members, liberal MPs, cabinet ministers. You're also on that list. What, what did you think when you saw that news? Uh, well, I mean, it would be exciting to say that I was terrified and shocked. Right. Um, but but frankly, I, I, I wasn't too too shocked. Uh, I was uh, with the Lithuanian ambassador to Canada having a coffee on, on Sparks uh, Street in, in Ottawa uh, when I when I saw a, a Canadian journalist tweet that I was on the list. And and we actually just had a, a bit of a chuckle. Um, look, I, you know, I, I didn't have any plans of, of taking a, a Russian river cruise this summer. Right. So I'm pretty my, my, my vacation plans are pretty safe. And and uh, you know, I've never had any assets in Russia, so uh, there's nothing to freeze. So you know, I think this was a symbolic gesture, and quite frankly, um, you know, I wear it as a bad badge of honor. Um, there are a lot of other very good people who have been placed on that list, and uh, and being on that list with them is, uh, like I said, a, a great honor. And I'm sure we're going to learn throughout this conversation that uh, you're certainly the furthest thing from a, a pro-Putin voice out there, which I guess partly explains why you're on this list. But just from your perspective, why were you singled out? Why were you put on this list? Because there's a lot of people out there who aren't saying favorable things about Putin. But uh, but you got an, a particularly honorable mention. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I'm going to guess that it's probably because I've spent much of the past 10, 15 years um, advocating for human rights and democracy in Russia. And, uh, and I've also spent a lot of time writing and, and speaking in media about um, the threat that Vladimir Putin poses to um, to Russians, first of all, uh, his neighbors, uh, and and Canada as well. And so, you know, going back to 2012, um, you know, I, I, I reached out and started connecting with a number of of uh, fairly well known uh, Russian uh, pro democracy opposition leaders. Among them, uh, Boris Nemtsov. Uh, Boris Nemtsov was, of course. Uh, should have been uh, named president by Boris Yeltsin in 2019 when Boris Yeltsin decided to step down as Russia's president. But instead, of course, 
uh, he chose Vladimir Putin. But but Boris Nemtsov was was certainly in the running to to become president. He was a uh, a very gregarious, uh, very warm-hearted um, reformer, uh, pro-democracy, pro-West. He wanted to bring Russia into Europe. He believed in a European Russia, one that respects human rights, democracy, um, and most importantly, the the sovereignty of its neighbors. Um, and so in 2012, I, I thought it might be a good idea because I, I already saw back in 20, you know, 2006 when, when Vladimir Putin started assassinating journalists in Russia, I, I, I sort of saw the direction that he was pulling Russia into, the, the direction that Europe might be pulled into, and I thought it might be a good idea to have Boris come to Canada. And so I arranged a trip for him to Toronto and Ottawa to meet with MPs and tell them about what's happening in Russia. And so I think that was the first instance where the where the Russian embassy here in in Ottawa probably took notice of of the things that I was doing. And and uh, of course Boris Nemtsov, unfortunately, um, a few years later in 2015, November, February 27th, in fact, was um, was gunned down just uh, uh, steps away from the from the Kremlin wow. because of his advocacy for human rights and democracy. And uh, and as well, Magnitsky sanctions. Um, these are, of course, sanctions that uh, it's legislation that allows Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, and several European countries to place uh, sanctions on, on uh, human rights abusers. And it started out as a as a law targeting um, Russian officials and such. And so he advocated for that, and that's probably one of the reasons why he got uh, was assassinated. Um, I've I've spent a lot of the past ten years also advocating for. For Magnitsky sanctions right here in Canada and Estonia and Latvia and Sweden and, and Australia and other places, um, and you know we we were lucky to 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 you know, I mean it took several years but we succeeded in getting that legislation passed here in in Canada as well. So that's another reason probably why the the uh, the uh, the government in in Russia probably doesn't doesn't like me. And and after you know Boris, I've I've worked with a number of other uh, well known. Uh, Russian dissidents, Vladimir Karamurza, who's a good friend of mine. He's poison, he's been poisoned twice, once in 2015, just after Boris was was shot, um, and then again in 2017. Uh, Gary Kasparov, who's of course the uh, well-known Russian chess grandmaster. Um, you know, we, we, I've worked with him uh, quite extensively over the past, and and of course Alexei Navalny's team. And so I think all of these things uh, put together, I think. <laughs> If they, they haven't made the uh, Russian embassy in Canada uh, or the Russian government uh, all that happy. And so I, I guess that sort of earned me a, a one-way ticket onto that sanctions list. Well, Marcus, let me ask a very basic question, but one that I know is just informed by all of this recent historical perspective that you bring, which is what's happening in Russia right now why did Russia invade Ukraine? What's going on? Yeah, um, that's a that's a great question. Um, what's happening inside Russia right now is that um, Vladimir Putin has taken complete control over the information environment. Uh, he has created a paranoid, conspiracy theory laden environment where there are enemies all around him, all around Russia. And he's positioned himself as the only person who can save Russia from the evil Democrats in the West, an evil liberal democracy. Um, how we've gotten to this point? Well, you know, I think we have to look back 
uh, several decades. Um, at, from we have to, we need to understand where Vladimir Putin comes from. Um, he comes from a KGB background. He was in the uh, 1980s. He was the uh, the KGB's station chief in uh, in Dresden in East Germany, and he worked very closely with East German uh, secret police with the Stasi. Uh, to coordinate um, uh, and support terrorist groups, um, whether they were Islamic terrorist groups or domestic uh, communist and far-left terrorist groups. Um, one of his primary tasks was to help fund them and, and resource them um, and help them in their activities in uh, targeting civilian European populations with terror campaigns. Uh, when, the, when the Cold War ended, when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, he was sort of left without a, a job. Um, you know, the KGB contracted. Uh, a lot of people were were left without jobs, um, and he uh, he got into politics. He he first entered politics in in Saint Petersburg, which was a uh, you know a, well, it was Leningrad, and it was of course renamed Saint Petersburg. Uh, and he sort of quietly sort of moved up through the ranks there until he got to the mayor's office. Uh, and connected with, you know, various different, uh, through the mayor's office, through, with various different emerging oligarchs, um, and and started uh, reconnecting with KGB as well. And so through the late uh, 1990s, that security apparatus, the KGB, the former KGB security ap- apparatus, which was then renamed the FSB, sort of, sort of regalvanizing, uh, regrouping and such. And through oligarchs, one of them... Uh, uh, it's it's been reported that Roman Abramovich, who was placed on Canada's sanctions list uh, just a couple of weeks ago, right. and has uh, over you know well over two billion dollars in assets in this country, he apparently nominated uh, Vladimir Putin uh, mm. as a successor to uh, to Boris Yeltsin, and uh, and once he got into power, we sort of saw his um, KGB sort of repressive Soviet era tendencies reemerge. And so there was an immediate uh, repression and crushing of, of, of independent media. Um, you know, I think most people would be surprised that during the 1990s, uh, Russia, you know, because I guess free media had been suppressed so long, um, it just exploded and flourished during the 1990s. I think Russia uh, during the mid 90s had the most, uh, most independent newspapers per capita in the world at that point i did not know that that's uh, fascinating it is fascinating and that quickly changed over just a few years uh really between uh 2000 when he came to power in 2006 many of those were shut down uh independent media outlets television they were raided and and stolen um brought under state control and uh as i mentioned earlier in 2006 um their independent journalists those were that were critical of Vladimir Putin, whistleblowers, um, anyone who came out publicly and spoke up against Vladimir Putin, they died mysteriously. Anna Politkovskaya was a well-known journalist who was critical of Putin's wars in Chechnya, which were very similar to the war that we're seeing right now, the sim- similar sort of um, uh, brutal uh, devastation. Uh, uh, civilians were targeted. Um, Politkovskaya reported on that, and she was shot in her in the elevator to her apartment in 2006. Uh, Alexander Litvinenko, who also, uh, he was a whistleblower and brought up 
uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, sort of dark tactics when it came to the war. He was poisoned with polonium, a radioactive substance, in his tea. So that's where you get the, when people say, don't drink the tea, if Vladimir Putin offers it to you, that's where it comes from. Uh, Marcus, at what point, though, I I think you can probably give me enough examples to fill an hour here, because I know there's so many people (laughs) in all of this. So I'll, I'll, I'll take the point that we've got quite a quite a list of of people who they've basically done in through these means and then we get to this point where we see the i guess the micro troubles in terms of the press and 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 the opposition and then the macro issues in terms of crimea and and other regions i know before we went to air um i you know i jokingly said we were chatting in advance of of uh russia uh, invading Ukraine, and had we had we recorded back then, I would have said, "Oh, come on, Marcus! Surely Putin's not actually going to invade." Because there are a lot of people who were saying, "No, I don't think yeah. he actually will." And at one point, Zelensky was even saying, "Oh, guys, you know, calm down. Like, please, you're destabilizing our yeah. economy by acting like yeah. there's going to be a war imminently." And then, well, a few weeks later, uh, there was. But but you you acknowledge that, like most people, you weren't saying that Russian forces were going to be bombing Kiev. No. No, no, uh, I didn't expect to see what we're seeing today. I mean, the, the problem for Vladimir Putin is, you know, all of that repression that he engaged in, the corruption that he engaged in, um, he's really left the, uh, has, has failed the Russian people. Uh, he, like, he's had no domestic successes. He's not made any changes. Um, you know, the the Russian Auditor General remarkably reported just two years ago that only, uh, that, sorry, that one in three Russian hospitals doesn't even have running water. And so, you know, his poll numbers have been dropping over the past uh, decade or so, Um, certainly since 2014 when he first invaded Crimea, because that was also an invasion that was intended to boost his poll numbers, and they did temporarily. But, um, you know, the Russian incomes have been falling. Uh, His poll numbers were, were sinking. And so, you know, when he when that happens, he needs a distraction. And so I think I, along with most other experts, believe that uh, this escalation that he was engaging in since the summer on his borders, that his primary objective would be to take that eastern part of Ukraine That's that he first invaded in 2014, but was never really able to properly secure. And the thought was that he would go in there, uh, have them declare independence. And he did that before uh, in the first few days of, of the war. Right. And, uh, and the assumption was that he would just stay put there um, because he couldn't ha- afford the war itself. He couldn't o- afford, given his poll numbers, to have all these uh, body bags coming back. But instead, we've seen this, um, you know, and I've, I said this uh, in the first few days of the invasion, that if he goes beyond Donbass, that, that's, um, you, ha- you have to question that because it's not particularly strategic. Um, right. Uh, well, and, well, Marcus, you know, let me ask, first of all, what's, what's really going on in Eastern Ukraine sentiment? Because I know Vladimir Putin will right. say, and I've read the polling that Russian state media has produced saying, you know, whatever, 80% of Eastern Ukrainians uh, want to separate or they want independence uh, in those regions. And we, we, you know, we can't trust Russian uh, state numbers. But then I also know here in the West, we're supposed to acknowledge the numbers like zero or what have you, but it's not zero. There's, there's stuff going on there. I mean, I will say, obviously, sovereign country, you don't cross that line. There's moral clarity there. You don't have the right to just go in and do that. But I know there's, there's, murky stuff going on in those most eastern parts how would you describe it well sure i mean we cannot trust any of the polling that the the russians put out there Uh, let's not forget the 2014 uh, referendum in crimea they the russians claim that the overwhelming 
number of Crimeans wanted to join the 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 Russian Federation. I mean, that it was just a fab- fabricated number. All elections in in Russia are shams. Uh, the 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 outcomes of those elections or referendums are predetermined. And so, what you know, would the are real there a- percentage be, though? Uh, in in eastern in eastern Ukraine right now, it's I mean it's hard to say how yeah. many how many people how many Ukrainians remain there how many how many pro Russians remain there it's it's really hard to say because that entire region has been Russian controlled de facto Russian controlled uh, since 2014 so there's no mm-hmm. independent way of verifying how many people would would uh, would support joining Russia you know it's probably uh, somewhere between a quarter maybe maybe a bit more than that I would not much more. Um, you know, I think that a lot of, especially if you look at Crimea, um, anyone who did support Crimea, and there have been uh, some good BBC reports about this, um, where people were interviewed before uh, Crimea was invaded, uh, where they said, oh, I think, you know, Russia would support us more than the Ukrainian government. And then they've done interviews several years afterwards where all these people, the same people, are saying, good Lord, did we ever make a mistake? Ah. Um, you know, we want to get back to Ukraine. And, you know, quite frankly, even though, you know, and, Ukraine and sorry, why did struggling. they say that? Is it quality of life? Like it's just quality like, of life. Absolutely. Hmm. Quality of life. Um, uh, you know, Ukraine is, is is has been struggling economically for, for a number of years. And that's one reason why it's trying to turn to the West. But Russia is an absolute basket case. Um, you know, there's a lot of wealth concentrated in, in two major cities, St. Petersburg and Moscow. Outside of, the, of that, there is abject poverty. And Vladimir Putin does not provide for his people. He doesn't care about his people. Uh, and the same can be said for, for Crimea. So, uh, you know, any, any, anything that the, the Crimeans had, uh, under, you know, if, if it was, life was difficult uh, to a certain degree under, under Ukrainian rule before the invasion of 2014, things have only gotten much, much worse. Um, and, and I think that those in, most people in eastern Ukraine probably recognize that as well. That that this is you know joining Russia will not bring too much benefit into their lives, and that joining Ukraine, especially if it's moving in the direction of the West and the EU, it's probably a better direction to go in for them. We'll be back in just a moment with more full comment with guest Marcus Kolga. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Marcus, you said you, like many other experts, did not expect Vladimir Putin Russian forces to go as west as they did. What happens next? Are they doing a bit of a uh, sort of overreach and then scale back? Okay, fine. We'll we'll get rid of this area. Just as long as you give us Donbass, we'll just take this eastern area and and we'll be done with all of this. Is is something like that at play right now? Uh, It could be. It's hard to say. Um, You know, I think originally that was the plan. Uh, Clearly, Vladimir Putin went off piste, as it were. Um, I don't think that any of his generals or his inner circle was expecting him to uh, invade the rest of Ukraine. I think uh, his ambition was to uh, clearly to take over all of Ukraine, uh, remove its its current uh, president uh, and its government, replace it one that was friendly to him. But clearly things have not gone very well. Uh, the Ukrainian army is, uh, you know, performing miracles. Uh, no one expected the Ukrainian army to do as, as well as it 
as it has. Um, and clearly, morale within the Russian army itself is is very, very low. Uh, none of these conscripts that have been thrust onto the front, they were they were told that they would be going into a special operation to, quote unquote, denazify uh, Ukraine's Jewish-led government. Uh, and they arrived there and were told to shoot uh, men, women, and children, uh, to bomb schools and hospitals and apartment buildings. Um, you know, Russians aren't naturally barbaric like their president. Uh, the Russian people are good people. And, uh, and that's, I think, why we're seeing this very low morale. We, we're seeing mass desertions. Just last week, there was a, a report that a, a battalion nor operating north of, of Kiev had taken its commander, pinned him down. They ran over him with a tank. And so there's even, you know, accounts of, of, of soldiers killing their, their commanders. And so I think that this has caused Vladimir Putin to readjust his strategy right now. He's probably bullying, pulling back on a number of fronts. Um, the likely outcome, his demands during this peace process will be to uh, keep Donbass, to keep Eastern Ukraine, to keep obviously Crimea, but also to maintain a land bridge between Crimea and Russia, which will include uh, holding on to the city of Mariupol, which he has bombed back to the Stone Age. Um, so that's that's probably going to be his demand uh, in the next few weeks. And, and we're clearly seeing that his the way that he's moving his troops are, are going to back. That's that's it's also uh, signaling that that's going to be the uh, the primary objective in the weeks to come. Now, there have been talks going on between Ukrainian negotiators and Russian negotiators. So the very idea of having talks suggests there's there's something to negotiate besides uh, either side just demanding that the other side 100% desist. Do you think there will be something like that where Ukraine kind of acknowledges, as you've said, oh, you guys have really been in this area and, you know, Crimea and the East for so many years. Ugh, you know, fine, we'll negotiate something like that. Like, is, is that in the works? Well, look, this, this war has got to end somehow. Um, and usually these wars are ended with with one side conceding something to the other. Um, right. What those what those concessions end up being, how they how these compromises are made, um, it remains to be seen. We understand that uh, that Zelensky is asking for a 15 year um, dialogue on the status of Crimea, which the the Kremlin has rejected. Uh, Zelensky 15 year dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, how would that unfold? What, what does that mean? I, I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it it sort of freezes the situation for that time. I right. think that Zelensky is trying to, uh, you know, he's playing. He's hoping to play out the clock with with Putin. Hopefully, you know, Putin uh, is removed from power or something else happens to him, and, and then maybe in ten years' time, if there's no Putin, maybe this, you know, that opens the window to have having uh, 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 Crimea reunified with 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 Ukraine. Who knows? Um, okay, I wanted to ask you about that question yeah. of Putin not being around because you mentioned the KGB culture slowly rises through the ranks. He's got a lot of buddies. I, I take the point that a lot of those buddies maybe got you know poisoned down the line and so forth, but others presumably there's still a connection. To what degree is this a one man show? And I take the point that you said the generals weren't even let in on these plans. But to what degree, okay, Putin's gone for by whatever means, when he's gone, do things do a 180? Or is there a culture in the upper brass that basically continues things more or less consistent with Putin's ideology? Well, you know, I mean, it, it depends on so many different things. You know, I, if, if Vladimir Putin 
<clears throat> and let's not forget, Vladimir Putin changed the Russian constitution just last summer. And this would allow him to remain in power until at least 2035. Um, you know, and there's no reason to believe that he would actually, if he were still alive, that he would leave at that point. So if all things remain the same, uh, if he were to remain in power, um, which is his objective to remain as powerful as long as possible and to consolidate more and more power, um, then we're in real trouble because we've seen over the past 22 years a, the cycle of conflict that he creates, his neo-imperialist aggression, his appetite for, for violence, um, and to destabilize the Western world. Um, it's only intensified over the past 10 years. It will get worse. Um, this is only feeding into his appetite, the destruction, the wanton destruction, uh, the killing of civilians. That's feeding into this appetite, and that appetite is only going to grow. So that's one option, that he stays there pretty much forever. Um, the, the, the second possibility is that uh, his miscalculations in Ukraine now have caused the inner circle to start questioning whether he's fit to remain. Um, that means the oligarchs who serve him, um, who hold his wealth for him, um, and who Putin allows to continue amassing wealth, um, do they get together and say, we've got to do something? It's possible. Um, there's another group that helps uh, enable Vladimir Putin. That's the Siloviki. These are the security, there's the security apparatus, the same, the, the old KGB um, who, uh, who protects Vladimir Putin, engages in all sorts of corruption, um, and uh, essentially keeps the Russian people repressed. Um, they will likely not give up power very easily, but if someone within that group decides that, well, maybe we need a change, um, that's possible as well. But I don't think in either of those cases, we're going to see any sort of positive change. We're not going to see a Russia that suddenly moves towards a, a more democratic Western sort of position. I think the best case scenario for Russia is that the people finally rise up. Um, you know, unfortunately, these repressions are, are going to start biting uh, probably towards the end of the summer. If they remain, the, the sanctions will really start biting in the fall and the winter of next year, especially if we cut off more of, uh, more of uh, the revenue for, for uh, more of Putin's revenues. And if there's a popular uprising, that's the only way that we're going to see a Russia that becomes a more normal Western sort of style democracy that respects human rights. And again, it's, you know, the, the sovereignty of its neighbors and its own people. That's, I think that's the best case scenario that we could hope for. And what is the appetite for that? Because I know we initially saw thousands of Russians taking to the streets saying, we don't support this war. And many of them were arrested or charged. I, I suppose many of them were not because you can't take all of them into paddy wagons. But we haven't continued to see numbers grow and grow every day and every weekend. And maybe Russians aren't crazy about this war or they don't entirely understand why do we necessarily have to do this. But is this situation enough to turn people against Putin? Do, do they want to? What What is the pro-anti-Putin sentiment right now? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, at the start of this uh, conflict, there were several thousand, thousands of, of Russians were taking the streets in St. Petersburg and, and Moscow. It's reported that 15,000 were arrested um, during those protests. That's big. That's a huge number. Um, it's, it's difficult for us to understand it because it is so big, um, but it's a huge number. Uh, and then just a few days after that, Vladimir Putin introduced legislation that outlawed 
anyone mentioning the word war in the context of what was happening in Ukraine or telling the truth of what was going on there at all. And uh, that meant that if you know you or I were talking about it, we lived in Moscow, the police could come and charge us, and we might face up to 15 years in prison. That's a long time. Uh, and so that's why we're not seeing large protests anymore. <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's 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 one very good reason. And and let's not forget those crackdowns. They weren't just putting people into prison, but these are you know fully decked out uh, policemen in riot gear um, with batons beating up uh, old women, young children, anyone. And so the, the the violence of those crackdowns was also, I mean, um, intended to terrorize the people, and and it had an effect. The second thing that's um, sort of problematic in this regard is that uh, Vladimir Putin has basically sealed off Russia, uh, completely sealed off Russia from the Western world in, in the context of information. Uh, so he's, uh, he's created his own internet. He's blocked off all social media, all Western media. Um, he has uh, outlawed all independent media. The last newspaper, Novaya Gazeta, uh, was shut down just a few days ago. And so there is no more independent media left in Russia. He completely controls the information environment at this point. And unfortunately, that's having an effect of, of um, boosting support for the war. Um, most Russians do, do not realize what is actually happening in, in Ukraine. They believe that this is just a small special operation um, that is limited in scope. They're not yet seeing the mass Russian casualties that are occurring. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, for right now, Vladimir Putin is winning that information war at home. He is controlling the narrative um, and his popularity is rising. But once the the truth starts trickling in, it'll be, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And, you know, as we were talking about earlier, you know, how does how does all this end for Vladimir Putin? I suspect that when the Russian people start, you know, again, those sanctions start biting, the truth starts trickling in. I don't think it's going to end very well for Vladimir Putin. Marcus, we do hear a lot of renewed pessimism, though, about the state of the world in general, democratic backsliding, leaning more towards uh, authoritarian power, doing okay in some sense. We have the sense that that the world stands against Putin, uh, and we certainly see that in our media and NATO countries. I read an interesting essay by Edward Luch in the Financial Times Uh, breaking down the idea that, hold on a second, let's not mistake Western unity for global consensus. And he points out that at a UN vote of the 35 nations that abstained against condemning Russia, um, he writes the 35 that abstained account for half the world's population. China, of course, is, is playing it down the middle, but so is India, Vietnam, South Africa, some very populous nations, uh, maybe they don't fully support what's going on, but they still go, well, we're just going to stand on the sidelines and, I don't know, side with the winner or what have you, not ruffle Putin's feathers. What should we make of that? Well, I, you know, I was actually quite shocked that India um, abstained from that vote. Uh, I mean, I, I shocked to a certain degree, but, I, you know, I, I think that India likes playing it both ways when it comes to China, China and Russia. I would argue that India would be far better off if it started working with, with the West Western democratic world, though, um, you know, in other cases, you know, you, you mentioned China. Uh, I think China is has been very closely watching what is going to what's happening in Ukraine, how the West reacts to it. Um, they, of course, uh, China uh, is 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 keen on um, on erasing Taiwan's sovereignty and its democracy. Right. 
And so I think that, you know, the way that we are reacting with Ukraine, um, they're, they're, again, they're watching that very closely because I think they're, they, they have plans for Taiwan. I think the Western world ultimately has done a fairly good job of reacting. I mean, there's so much more that we can do, but the, the, certainly the sanctions, the, the, the mass sanctions that we've placed onto Russia, I think China has taken note of that. Uh, this is something that um, they're concerned about. They, they know that if they tried a, a similar action in Taiwan, that at least with regards to sanctions, they might face the same sort of uh, barrage of, of economic warfare. And so I think in, in that sense, we're, we're doing a, a pretty good job. Uh, among the other countries that abstained, a lot of them are African countries. Um, and this is one area where uh, Canada really hasn't paid much attention to. I think the Western world has largely sort of um, ignored Africa for the past uh, decade, Great decade point. and a half. And, and China. And China hasn't. You, no, China has They're not. good friends with them. China, They're showering them with money. China's been, uh, you know, was quite happy when the West retreated from Africa uh, after the Cold War. China's been quietly working at building influence and uh, economic influence in Africa for, for uh, well over a couple of decades now. Russia has been doing the same. Russia jumped back into Africa about uh, seven or eight years ago. Uh, and has um, and has really, I mean, uh, connected with, the, with some of the most corrupt regimes, not surprisingly, in Africa, um, with offers to prop them up in, in exchange for uh, concessions on on natural resources. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of the nations that we saw abstain from that vote are are a result of that, you know, renewed Russian influence in in Africa and other in other places in Southeast Asia as well. So this is something I think that uh, the Western world also has to be aware of that that these two China and Russia are are playing in are are playing that game in those regions. And, uh, you know, we need to become more active in in places like Africa and and uh, Southeast Asia. Marcus, you talked about doing more, and we hear a lot about that uh, discussions in Canadian media. What more can we do? And there's obviously the personal angle in terms of making contributions to humanitarian aid, a lot of individuals doing civil society efforts to, to bring over refugees uh, and, and to, to welcome uh, displaced Ukrainian persons here in Canada. The big picture, do more. I mean, we're giving so much in, in terms of, of course, uh, funds and, and there's degrees of military aid. Lots of questions about a no-fly zone. Zelensky originally asking for all of that. Uh, NATO boss Jen Stoltenberg saying, uh-uh, ain't going to happen. President Biden, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau siding with them. A, a lot of people have mixed minds of that. I'm of the view that I support us not enforcing a no-fly zone in terms of uh, the spiraling effects uh, that, that that can bring about in terms of a conflict. And Zelensky himself, I noticed, did uh, basically admit that it was fair to characterize Ukraine as a gray zone, uh, obviously not a NATO nation. Where do you stand in these questions in terms of the the, the do more in terms of muscle? Uh, do more means uh, sending more lethal defensive weapons. It means sending more anti-tank weapons. It means sending uh, drones where possible. It means uh, sending surface-to-air missiles to, to um, empower okay. the Ukrainians themselves to to defend their, their country. It's clear that NATO is not going to get involved. So I think we have to accept that. Um, with regards to no-fly zones, though, um, you know, we need to make damn sure whether it's in the UN, NATO, or coalition of the willing, that we secure those green corridors to allow the the thousands upon thousands of refugees who are stuck in cities like uh, Kharkiv, in Mariupol, in Chernyev, um, ensure that they can get out safely. You know, every time Russia guarantees a, 
a, a safe corridor for them to escape, they opened fire on the refugees. Just today, um, they committed to allowing refugees to leave Mariupol or citizens, uh, residents of Mariupol. They're not refugees yet. They're residents of Mariupol uh, yeah. to leave as refugees. Um, and when it when that was agreed to, just a few hours later, the, as the buses started streaming out of Mariupol, the Russians blocked them. They wouldn't allow them to leave. So after they agreed to allow some refugees to leave, they stopped them from doing so. And if they have to turn back, we know that the Russians are indiscriminately bombing civilian infrastructure. In fact, in Mariupol, 90% of the, the uh, civilian infrastructure is being destroyed. Homes, apartment buildings, schools, hospitals. Um, and so ensuring that those corridors are secured is something that the world needs to do. That's not even that's not even a NATO question. Um, this is a humanitarian catastrophe. Um, and, you know, we need to come together. The world needs to come together to stop this barbarian from just slaughtering, you know, men, what women, and children. What does that mean practically, though? Because, yes, it's so barbaric. And to say, OK, here's your here's your free travel. And then, oh, no, we're going to fire on you is just the most morally despicable thing there is. But doesn't that still present the same logistical challenges that a no-fly zone uh, creates if, if this is something that's being done in, in, in Ukrainian soil? What, what are the nuts and bolts of that? Look, it, I, it, does it have the same hazard? Yeah, of course it has the same hazard. But this is, I think, the, the humanitarian aspect needs to be taken to the UN. Um, this right. is something that the UN needs to, to, to vote on. Um, we know, of course, that the, the Russians have a veto in the Security Council, so it would probably veto this. But it needs to go through this process. Um, and if the UN rejects um, any protection of these refugees, then we need to look elsewhere. And maybe that is, you know, NATO, uh, NATO plus. So maybe it's NATO plus Sweden, Finland. Um, maybe there are some, you know, uh, other nations outside of Europe uh, in North America that would want to to help with that. But I'm not seeing that effort right now. And this is I think that's the the path to protecting those people because that's I think for for us in Canada, I mean obviously Ukraine's sovereignty is is of is a priority. We want to help them secure that. But it's these refugees. The fact that there are four four million people, there are four million refugees right now, after just after five weeks of of war. Uh, that number is only going to grow. A quarter of all Ukrainians are displaced. This is where our focus needs to be on protecting those civilians and making sure uh, that they're safe. And and another thing that I want to bring up, and no one's talking about this yet, is who's going to pay for all this? You know, and this is something we need to start thinking about as well, maybe in the context of the sanctions that we've placed, um, because it's going to cost trillions of dollars to fix all of the damage, the destruction that Vladimir Putin has caused us. Marcus Colgut, very good points. The uh, count of 4 million refugees, definitely a, a, a really disturbing number to have in such a short period of time. Sir, thank you so much for your insights and your expertise today. It's been an informative conversation. Thanks so much for having me on, Anthony. All the best. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.